Kabbalah. Why would anybody study a philosophy that is 700 years old? Why would anybody study the main book of Kabbalah, the Zohar, a book written in Spain in the 13th century, composed in Aramaic, a language spoken even then by hardly anyone in the world? Why would anybody read a book that's intentionally cryptic and perplexing? Why? Because Kabbalah challenges our understanding of God and of human existence. It dares us to transform ourselves. Kabbalah shatters childish theological images and discovers a God called infinity, Ein Sof. Ein Sof transcends gender and personality, but within the realm of the Sifirot, the divine qualities, God is both female and male, Shekhinah and the Holy One, blessed be he. Israel's spiritual task is to unite these male and female halves of God by living a holy life. Every human action affects the divine couple, either promoting or hindering their union. God is not static being, but dynamic becoming. Let's start with the word Kabbalah itself. The root kabel means to receive. So you could translate kabbalah, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, as receiving, or that which has been received. That term refers, on the one hand, to tradition, wisdom received and treasured from the past, wisdom handed down from teachers to disciples. In that sense, kabbalah is old, even ancient. But on the other hand, receiving is something we can do right now. So Kabbalah also implies something current, present, immediate. If we become truly receptive, wisdom appears spontaneously, unprecedented, taking us by surprise. Kabbalah demands that we be open to new insights, new approaches to God and tradition. You could say that Kabbalah is simultaneously new and ancient. In fact, the Zohar, the masterpiece of Kabbalah, calls its teachings milin chaditin atikin, new ancient words. It's this combination of new insight and ancient tradition that makes Kabbalah so intriguing and so vital for contemporary Jews. Kabbalah crystallized in Provence and Spain in the 12th and 13th centuries but the mystical stream within Judaism is certainly much older. What is mysticism? It's a hard word to define, but a simple definition might be direct experience of God. In other words, the mystic isn't satisfied with simply carrying out God's commands, with fulfilling the requirements of religion. She or he wants some direct encounter with this divine reality. We certainly find evidence of that long before the Kabbalah in medieval Europe, for example, right in the Bible. I just mentioned the phrase en sof, God as infinity. This is certainly one of the key insights of Kabbalah, the boundlessness of God, his indefinability. And yet we find an ancient precursor right in the book of Exodus, when Moses learns God's secret name at the burning bush. Eheyeh asher eheyeh, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. 
It's as if God is refusing to pin himself down, refusing to define himself. God cannot be defined. Let's turn to the major book of the Kabbalah, the Zohar. This is a book, as the rabbi mentioned, I've been devoting myself to for the past 18 years, trying to translate it from Aramaic into English. But I'm also trying to preserve some of the ancient flavor of the Kabbalah, of the Zohar. I don't want to make it too simple. In fact, my favorite comment, a review came out in the San Francisco Chronicle when the first two volumes were published. It was a positive review, and at the end of the review, the reviewer said, it's still in Aramaic. <laughs> and I like that because I'm trying to convey some of the strangeness of the language, some of its difficult and poetic quality. So what is this book? I'd like to start with the meaning of the word itself, as we did with Kabbalah. Kabbalah means receiving. Zohar means radiance or splendor. It's based on a verse in the book of Daniel, Bahamaskilim yazhiru kezohar harakia. The enlightened will shine like the Zohar of the sky. The Zohar seemed to appear out of nowhere. In late 13th century Spain, a Kabbalist, a Jewish mystic named Moses de Leon, began circulating booklets of mystical teaching, written in lyrical Aramaic, sparkling with invented words, arcane symbolism, and erotic imagery. These tales and teachings were perplexing, yet enchanting. But Moses de Leon never admitted that he wrote the Zohar. He claimed he was copying from an ancient book and that the original went back over a millennium earlier to the circle of a famous Talmudic rabbi, Shimon Bar Yochai, a student of Rabbi Akiva. So this is the amazing thing about the Zohar. It was written in Spain in the 13th century, and yet the author claimed that he was simply the scribe copying from an ancient manuscript. So the question is, why didn't Moses de Leon come out and admit that he was the author? Authors usually love to hear them, their name associated with their book. Why did he attribute the book to this ancient rabbi? Probably in part so that his new teachings would be accepted as ancient tradition. For example, the feminine half of God. If Moses de Leon had come out and said, God is a woman, it might not have gone over so well. But now it was the ancient Rabbi Shimon who was teaching about Shekhinah, who was tracing her romantic exploits, her intimacy with the Holy One, blessed be he. And although people raised questions right at the beginning, within a few decades, the Zohar became accepted as HaZohar HaKadosh, the Holy Zohar. It really ranked along with the Bible and the Talmud as one of the holiest books in Judaism for many centuries. What I want to focus on with the rest of the time we have together, and I promised the rabbi that I would finish before midnight, <laughs> is, no, really, we're just going to spend a little time exploring what I think is the central teaching of the Zohar, the, one of the central teachings of all the Kabbalah, and that is this notion of Shekhinah, the feminine aspect of God. You can tell that it's talking about the feminine because it begins S-H-E. Okay, sometimes English helps you even more than the Hebrew or the Aramaic. So I think many of you have the sheet, the small green sheet uh, that was in the handout. If you came in a little bit late and don't have it, please look uh, along with a neighbor because uh, it will help to, to follow these teachings as we trace them. We're going to look at a few one-liners, really, about Shekhinah and then study together one passage from the Zohar. 
Ein Sof, that phrase, God as infinity, is really an invention of the Kabbalists. But that's not the case with Shekhinah. Shekhinah is a central idea in Kabbalah, but it was not invented by the Kabbalists. The word itself, Shekhinah, never appears in the Bible, although we do have the root, Shachan. Shachan meaning to dwell. In fact, our prayer book, the beautiful reform prayer book, is called Mishkan Tefillah, from that same root, Shachan. What is Mishkan? The dwelling place of God, that portable sanctuary the Israelites carried through the wilderness. So the root Shachan means to dwell. And in fact, it says in the book of Exodus, Vasuli Mikdash, have them make me a sanctuary, Vishachanti Betocham, I will dwell among them. So you have the verb Shachan in the Bible. The rabbis turn this into a noun, Shekhinah. What does Shekhinah mean? It means the dwelling of God in the world, God's presence in the world. For example, the rabbis ask an interesting question about the burning bush. They say, why did God appear to Moses in a bush? Couldn't he have, couldn't he have picked something a little more impressive? Uh, a sycamore tree, a cypress, a eucalyptus, a palm tree. Why some shrub? In order to teach us, the rabbis say, and this is teaching number one on your sheet, en makom ba'aretz panui min hashchina. There's no place empty of shechina. So this shows you what the word shechina means in the, in, in the Talmud. God's presence in the world. The technical term is imminence. God's imminence, God's reality right here. God is not just beyond. God is not just transcendent. God is available and present in the world. That's what shechina means. But shechina refers not only to God's presence in some general sense. Look at number two. Bechol makom shegalu, wherever Israel went in exile, Shechina imahem, Shechina was with them. So the point is, God is in the world, but God is also intimately connected with the Jewish people. So Shechina refers to that intimacy of the divine with Am Yisrael, with the people of Israel. If Israel is exiled to Egypt, Shechina is with them. If Israel is exiled to Babylon, Shechina is with them. If Israel is exiled to Europe, God is with them. Even if Israel is exiled to the West Coast, Shekhinah is still with them. So Shekhinah is God's presence in the world and God's intimacy with the Jewish people. Look at number three. Ashrehem ha-tzadikim. Happy are the righteous. Shehem mashkinim ha-shekhinah ba'aretz. They cause Shekhinah to dwell on earth. Now this is a little strange because we just said that Shekhinah is on earth. Shekhinah is God's presence in the world, so why do you have to bring Shekhinah into the world? You might say that God is potentially in the world, but it's up to us to make that potential a reality. That's really what religion is all about, turning that potential divine presence into a real divine presence through acting ethically, through cultivating a spiritual life. If we act lovingly toward one another, if we overcome all the negativity in the world, we welcome God into our lives. In that sense, we make a dwelling place for Shekhinah. One of my favorite names for Shekhinah in Kabbalah is Sod HaEfshar, the secret of the possible. That's a name that one Kabbalist gives the Shekhinah. So she, she is potentially here, but it takes our commitment, it takes our devotion to turn that potential into a reality. 
And one more passage before we turn to the Zohar. Number four, this is a line from the Talmud. When Rav Yosef heard his mother's footsteps, he would say, I will arise before Shekhinah, who is approaching. It's very beautiful. This one rabbi, when he heard his mother coming into the room, he said, I'm going to get up because the Shekhinah is coming into the room. So for that rabbi, his mother was an embodiment of the Shekhinah. This is very significant because it's often said that one of the innovations of the Kabbalah is to insist that Shekhinah is feminine. But we can see here, at least for this Talmudic rabbi, 500 years, 600 years before the Kabbalah, there was already a sense in which Shekhinah is feminine. So what is the change that happens between the Talmud and the Zohar, between Rabbinic Judaism and the Kabbalah? The Kabbalists inherit all of the earlier stages of Jewish tradition, all of Biblical Judaism, all of Rabbinic Judaism, but they insist on a more experiential variety of Judaism. They want to transform Judaism into some direct encounter with this divine presence. And one of the things they insist on is that God is equally male and female. The Kabbalists must have felt that it's inadequate to simply promote a patriarchal version of Judaism. Now, this is interesting. You remember that phrase I used a few minutes ago, new ancient words. That really applies to this idea of Shekhinah. Because on the one hand, it's a new idea to say that God is feminine, right? If you open up the Bible, if you open up the prayer book, it's almost impossible to find a, fe a feminine description of God. So it's a radically new idea to say that God is equally male and female. In that sense, this is new. But it's also ancient. Why do I say that? If we go back to ancient Israel, we know that there was a goddess, right? It's just that the, the prophets are railing against the goddess. Right? The prophets are, are castigating the people for worshiping the false gods and goddesses of Canaan. The goddess goes by various names, Astarte, Asherah, Anat. How do we know that the Israelites were worshiping the goddess? Because the prophets are criticizing the people for doing that. So you might say there was a goddess in ancient Israel, but she was extirpated. She was uprooted. She was eliminated from the official religion but somehow there was something about the feminine that could not be totally expunged. There must have been a subterranean existence of this feminine reality, and then she reemerges in the Kabbalah. So in that sense, the Shekhinah is both new and ancient. You could almost say that Shekhinah is the goddess now becoming kosher. Okay, that goddess who is almost totally eliminated from Judaism now reemerges. One scholar has called this the revenge of myth. Okay, that mythic reality of the balancing the patriarchal notion of God could not be totally eliminated, and finally it reemerges in the Kabbalah. So now we're ready to look at one very short passage from the Zohar, and then I just want to reflect on how this connects with Shabbat. Look at number five. Even if you know very little Hebrew, look at these three words. Vayegaresh et ha'adam. This is from the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, describing the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Okay, we all remember the story. Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then they're expelled from the garden. And in three words, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 says, Vayegaresh et ha'adam. Okay, Vayegaresh means 
he drove out. Et means nothing. Ha'adam means Adam. Okay, now a few of you laughed when I said et means nothing. How can you have a word that means nothing? In Hebrew, the word et cannot be translated. In Hebrew, you, it's really what, what grammarians call a particle. Why do they call it a particle? Because they don't know what it is. They have to call it something. In Hebrew, you can't say, for example, you can't say, I drink the water. You have to say, I drink et the water. You can't say, I see the tree. You have to say, I see et the tree. It precedes the direct object if that direct object has the word the. The direct object has the definite article. You have to use this word et. So it's very strange. It, it may be something, something else very interesting about the word et. How is it spelled? Two letters, aleph, taf. The first letter of the alphabet, the last letter of the alphabet. This is a word that encompasses the whole alphabet, and yet it means nothing. Now that's too good for a rabbi to pass up. <laughs> and we know there are rabbis who actually built their whole career on interpreting the word et. <laughs> Rabbi Akiva, one of the founders of rabbinic Judaism, he loved to interpret et. For example, there's a verse in Deuteronomy, et ha'elohim tira'un, you should revere God. But the Hebrew doesn't say just you should revere God, it says you should revere et God. Rabbi Akiva said, this proves that you should revere your rabbi. The principle is et adds something to the verse. It seems to mean nothing, but it could mean anything. So there are people who thought that Rabbi Akiva went too far. Some of them said dayecha. Right on Passover, we say dayenu, enough for us. They said dayecha, enough with you already. Rabbi Akiva stopped these ets, because you can imagine how many times et comes in the Torah. Every time there's a direct object with a definite article, you have the word et. There are thousands of them. So it's dangerous to interpret the word et, but the rabbis interpreted it, and the Kabbalah now adds their own interpretation. In Kabbalah, though, in the Zohar especially, the word et means something very specific. What does the word et refer to? I'll give you a hint. Any question I ask for the next five minutes, the correct answer is Shekhinah. <laughs> so what does et mean? Shekhinah. She is Aleph Tataf. She is the totality of divine speech or of divine creative energy. She includes all the qualities of God, so she is Aleph to Taf. She is Et. Okay, now we have what we need to understand this line from the Zohar. The Zohar is, of course, a commentary on the Torah. So here it's commenting on this verse in Genesis, Vayi Garesha to Adam. The only other thing I have to tell you is that the verb Garash, Le Garesh, can mean to drive out or to divorce. In biblical Hebrew, legaresh can also mean to divorce. And there's a midrash. Midrash, of course, is the rabbinic imaginative commentary. There's a midrash that says it's as if God and Adam were married. But because Adam failed to fulfill the divine command, God divorced Adam. How do we know that God divorced Adam? Because it says, vayigaresh et Adam, which they interpret to mean he divorced Adam. Okay, and that's where the Zohar takes off from. For some of you, you've never read a piece of Zohar before. This may be your first encounter with Zohar. So put on your seatbelts. <laughs> Rabbi Elazar said, we do not know who divorced whom, if the blessed Holy One divorced Adam or not. Now what's the alternative? Did God divorce Adam or 
Adam divorced God, the Zohar is not going to say something so radical. The Zohar just says what? Or not. It makes you come up with that radical, almost heretical alternative. This is very characteristic of the Zohar. It doesn't come out and say what it wants to say. It comes out and gives enough of a hint that you figure out what it wants to say. So the Zohar is stimulating us to figure this out and not telling it to you, just you know, giving it to you on a platter. But that's very bizarre. Did God throw Adam out of the garden or, did, or not? But the word is transposed, by which I think he means the whole verse is turned on its head. He drove out et. In other words, don't read the verse, he drove out et Adam. Put the period after et. He drove out et. And we now know that that means what? He drove out Shekhinah. Who drove out et? Then we read the next word, Adam. So you see what he's doing to the verse. He's just doing a violent act to the verse. Obviously, the verse means God drove out Adam. But the Zohar wants us to see it very differently. He drove out Et. He drove out Shekhinah. Who drove out Shekhinah? The next word tells us, Adam. Adam actually drove out Et. Consequently, it's written, Yudhevavhe Elohim, this double name for God, Yudhevavhe Elohim expelled him from the Garden of Eden. Okay, the Zohar does not deny that God expelled Adam. But why did God expel him? Because Adam drove out Et, as we have explained. I love that, as we have explained. First of all, he didn't explain it. <laughs> Second of all, when did he say anything at all? Two lines earlier. But now all of a sudden, it's a tradition. This I would call, new, this is a instant tradition. Again, it's that combination of new and ancient, a radically new idea, but pretending that it's right there in the Torah. So this sounds interesting, it sounds intriguing, it sounds revolutionary. Adam threw God out of the garden, but what is he saying? He may mean that Adam should have meditated on the union of Shekhinah and the Holy One, blessed be he. He should have contemplated the union of this divine couple, and instead he split them apart. It may have mean that he grabbed Shekhinah separately for himself, or maybe, maybe there's a psychological interpretation here that Adam, what was the sin really? Adam and Eve became aware of themselves as separate individuals. They lost their connection with the oneness of the universe. Now that's not so much a sin, that's just something that naturally happens to each of us, right? You can think, think back as far as you can think. People usually say you can't remember much before the age of five, but those of you who have children, think of what your child was like at age one and a half or two. You might say that every baby is a mystic. Every baby doesn't make the distinction between self and other, right? Which is why it's so dangerous to let a baby around. The baby doesn't know where it ends and the street begins. So we lose that oneness. We lose that infantile naivete very soon. Sometime in the second year, perhaps, the baby realizes me, mommy, me, the world. And from then on, it's downhill, right? I mean, from then on, we're, we're separate. We can't survive without that separateness, without that ego. But what Kabbalah is teaching is that there's a price we pay if we're boxed into that separate sense of self. We lose our connection with the whole. We lose our connection with the universe. So Kabbalah is an attempt to try to reestablish our connection with the divine. We've lost the divine. We've thrown God out of our lives. And that's why we find ourselves 
isolated or alienated. That, I think, is the Zohar's interpretation of the garden story. Adam threw God out of the garden. Each of us loses touch with that divine, and a challenge is to reacquaint ourselves with Shekhinah. So how does this connect with Shabbat? In Kabbalah, as I mentioned in introducing Lechadodi, Shekhinah is identified as the Shabbat queen. She is that bride or queen who we welcome. This really goes back to the Talmud also. One rabbi, we are told, wrapped himself in a garment on Friday evening and said, come, let, let us go welcome Queen Sabbath. Another rabbi would put on special clothes and say, come, O bride, come, O bride. So already in the Talmud, we have the, the Shabbat identified as the bride or as the queen. What Kabbalah does is to unite that with the idea of Shekhinah. Now the bride and the queen is not only Queen Shabbat, she is the feminine divinity. And of course, it was in Safed, in that beautiful mountaintop city of Tzfat in the Galil, that the Kabbalists developed this, this ritual of Kabbalat Shabbat. As I mentioned, the whole service tonight is called the Kabbalah of Shabbat, meaning not the mysticism of Shabbat, but the welcoming of Shabbat. Isaac Luria, the great Kabbalist of Tzfat, says this, go to a high spot, clear as far as you can see in front of you, turn toward the west, toward the sunset. As it sets, close your eyes, meditate on Shekhinah. So it was the Kabbalists who invented Kabbalat Shabbat, and this beautiful hymn, L'Chadodi, was composed in their circle. How can we rediscover Shekhinah on Shabbat? One way is simply to pause, to slow down, to stop. That's really the literal meaning of Shabbat, to stop. People say it means to rest, but it really means more simply to stop. We can stop and appreciate the wonder of creation. That's something often missing from our lives. The Torah says, God finished working on the seventh day. Now that sounds strange, because didn't he really finish on the sixth day? The rabbis say, no, there was still one thing missing, and that was rest. Without rest, there isn't completion. There isn't that opportunity to appreciate. So Shabbat is an opportunity to reacquaint ourselves with a deeper dimension of reality. Shabbat is an antidote to materialism. On this day, the Talmud says we're given an extra soul, neshama yetera, with which we can savor the spiritual aspect of life, nature, family and friends, intimacy, peace and quiet. Imagine a whole day when you possess the greatest luxury possible, not thinking about money. That's really the greatest luxury, not to think about money, making it, counting it, spending it. Shabbat is a day to pretend that the mall is closed. Of course, the whole concept of the weekend is based on Shabbat. Without Shabbat, there would ne never be such a thing as a weekend. But the American weekend has been consumed and corrupted by shopping and errands. We can restore half of each weekend to its original purpose by simply disengaging from materialism. Shabbat is an opportunity to recover those rare, simple pleasures, walking, reading, being together with those we love. A generous measure of unscheduled time is an essential ingredient of Shabbat. Shabbat is a palace in time. If you observe Shabbat, the rabbis say, it's as if you've observed the whole Torah. 
On Shabbat, we have the chance to recover the imminence of God, the nearness of God. Shekhinah, l'cha dodi, come my friends, let us greet the bride, Shekhinah, the divine presence. Let us welcome her back into our lives. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.